Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, everyone. This week's episode of Screen Talk is sponsored by Random House, publishers of Ant Kind, the debut novel from Academy Award winning screenwriter Charlie Kaufman. Remember that guy? From the bold and boundlessly original brain behind Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Adaptation, and Being John Malkovich comes a novel only Charlie Kaufman could pull off. B. Rosenberg Rosenberg is a neurotic and underappreciated film critic, of all things, who stumbles upon a film he thinks might be the greatest movie ever made. The only problem? The film is destroyed, and he was its only witness. As B. scrambles to recreate this lost masterwork, he also attempts to keep up with an ever-fracturing culture of likes and arbitrary denunciations. Maria Simple... Author of Where'd You Go, Bernadette, says Antkind is so kaleidoscopic you will question your own sanity. Susan Orlean says, to paraphrase Charlie Kaufman, it's like a brain factory in there. Antkind by Charlie Kaufman is available everywhere. Books are sold, and it sounds amazing. I can't wait to read it. Go check it out. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly movie podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the executive editor and chief critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson, our editor at large out in LA. And Ann, we've got plenty of stuff to talk about this week. Once again, despite the shutdown, there is all kinds of stuff happening in the movie world. So this week we'll be talking about how the streaming platforms are basically dictating the summer movie season. We've got film festival updates, whatever's going on in LA and other parts of the country with uh, questions about reopening and a couple of people who we lost this week in the film industry. But uh, before we get into all that, let's start with some of the movies that are coming out. I mean, one of the things I think is really interesting for us to talk about is that, you know, even if there are no summer blockbusters, there are a really fascinating array of films that have been released on streaming platforms to the point where it kind of feels like we're seeing for the first time what a summer movie season looks like that is dictated by the streaming wars. So the, the, the kind of the idea that the streaming wars was all about like everybody trying to figure out who could be dominant, that's still happening, I guess. But I also feel like, I mean, what do you make of this idea that we're, we're sort of, we're seeing the streaming war future in which the biggest movies coming out every week are streaming movies. So you've got Greyhound with Tom Hanks, the World War II movie that was supposed to be at Paramount but got sold to Apple Plus, right? And then you've got um, the uh, old guard, Charlize Theron in all her glory, directed by Gina Prince-Bythewood, and and that's an action film 
dominated by fabulous women uh, for for Netflix. And then, and then you've got Palm Springs, good old good old neon on Hulu, um, very much of a of a Sundance title, um, totally different vibe, uh, really fun. And uh, I I have to say I enjoyed watching all three movies in very different ways. Yeah, they're very different movies. Well, let's talk about the Tom Hanks um, at Sea film first, because that was one. It wasn't really on my radar at the start of this year as a studio movie. And there were several Tom Hanks movies coming out, and that was one of them. And it was probably... I mean, I'm more interested in some ways in the news of the world, the, the, the Paul Greengrass coming up. Right. That's sort of a Western thing that he did. But this one, I mean, if you look at the images of it, it feels like Captain Phillips, but it's really not that kind of a movie at all. It's this World War II thing exclusively on a, on a boat. And, um, what's a destroyer. A destroyer, yeah. And what's interesting about it, I mean, I, I have to say, I mean, it's a very slight movie overall it's like 80 minutes long and it's all tom hanks running around with a furrowed brow kind of looking <laughs> at these things and being and who like, else could Fine. do it it's it's very old-fashioned is yeah. what it is except yeah. that you've got all these boats in the water that are totally cgi and yeah. i would also argue it isn't great cgi at, at all it, it it's sort of a it feels like a low budget movie really and it doesn't feel um modern it just feels very old-fashioned but if we look at tom hanks he's the one who who was behind um the hbo series with um damian lewis i'm blocking the name of it now the, the great brothers. world war ii uh yeah yeah once yeah and then he did pacific exactly once for brothers and he did he did the pacific and he was involved you know he has a production company and he's he likes to write and direct um sometimes and in this case he he wrote and starred and produced and and it, it isn't that well directed <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that said, I'll watch him. I'll watch Tom Hanks. Yeah, I, the thing about Tom Hanks is that he is one of the rare movie stars where part of the process is convincing you that he is Tom Hanks plus this character. Like, you will never get over the fact that you're watching Tom Hanks, but he has to convince you that there's something unique about the character he's playing here. And in this case, you know, he's kind of this like humorless troubled guy who really wants, he's religious, he wants to get back to, you know, this woman he wants to marry, and that's kind of all That was the like the worst thing, that whole scene uh, with yeah, Elizabeth there's a Shear. weird frame Horrible. of the like Hated it. But that's all you need to know, and then the rest of the movie, he's just kind of running around. I think a better directed version of this movie would have been really fascinating, because if you think about it, it's like, it's all one location. You know, you could do stuff with, you know, long takes and all that. that well, part of what struck me about it, that, that Hanks was, in, in, you know, enjoying on some level what he was trying to play with was the analog aspect of this. The idea that it's all about eyes on the thing and figuring out where the torpedoes are going and they're yes. swishing through the water. It just doesn't compare, though, to a movie like The Hunt for Red October or yeah, I mean, Crimson Tide. I mean, it's or Das Boot. It's not in that league at all. And it is, it is a minor effort, but at the same time, I'll watch Tom Hanks. And he's carrying the world upon his shoulders, and he's literally on his feet, bloody feet, it turns out, for days. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. It goes on and on, and yet, like I said, it's, it's so short, and it, it just kind of fizzles at the end. And I felt like there were moments where this would have, if somebody else had been behind it, uh, have been a very hard movie to to finish. I mean, like I would I would think that a studio note 
would have been something like give us more, make it, you know, give us like five different endings and some hand-to-hand combat or, you know, develop the relationship with the creepy German guy who keeps threatening them on the radio. (laughs) Or at least if you think about a movie like The Hunt for Red October, that movie, every single one of those characters is well-defined. You know exactly who they are and you grow attached to them. You know, whether whether it's Stellan Skarsgård or, or, or Sam Neill, you know, you, you know them. And uh, that just didn't happen. There were all these young guys, sort of faceless young guys. One British actor who I always like, whose name I'm going to forget, of course, um, you know who he is. He, he's the second in command, the lieutenant who's, who's doing all the math on sure. the you know, figuring out all the calculations. The movie also has a weird sort of like getting wet feet when it comes to issues of race problem where it tries to deal with this. There's like a, there's a black chef and and it doesn't, I I felt like on some level it was like afraid to get too deep into that. So it it tries to do it in in a- It's probably the way it was at the time, obviously, but but, uh, yeah, it was awkward. I agree. And I think bigger picture question here because we're talking about these streaming movies coming out is like if this had been a, stu- a traditional studio it movie, wouldn't it have done well it would have fizzled right but on probably. apple it could probably do really well and it's perfect for their audience they like this mainstream kind of movie and people are hungry i bet it does well there yeah and then th- so that brings some- and paramount collected some money for it they right. sold it they got paid on that, on you that. know and then yeah. also, you know, it allows, I, I feel like we're in this like experimental phase with some somebody like Apple to see what it's like to put out one of these bigger kinds of movies as they ramp up to whatever they're doing with Scorsese well, and stuff like that. The rea- You're making a point. They ponied up for that movie because they've got the money. And the point is, is that the, the streamers have such an advantage right now coming out of the pandemic because they've got money and the studios do not have any money left. Yeah, they, they have some, but it's, it's a question of, of, of relative deep pockets and the streamers are just in so much better shape at this point. All right, so let's talk about The Old Guard because again, we don't have a traditional Marvel superhero movie this summer. This is the big superhero movie coming out. You know, this is the one that we've gotten in the last few weeks um, and it's, it's a weird one. It is, I think, um, Pretty it's a different gaze. It's it is it is a different gaze, but on on many levels, the Gina Prince Blythewood directing Charlie Saron as this like immortal woman who, with a band of immortals and and um, recruiting Kiki Lane as the new immortal to fight against I, I don't know exactly what, but um, it, it's a kind of ridiculous movie, and I I thought a little too humorless in parts, but Charlie Saron definitely continues her ass kicking ways in some very satisfying facts. What's really cool about the whole question of movie stardom, right? And and how a given uh, actor can have a certain kind of built-in threat based on the other movies that they've already done. So if you've got Imperator Furiosa behind you, right? And, and, um, and uh, uh, exactly a time blonde and, and you can kick ass like that, then you, you have established your bona fides. And so going in, you, you know, you see Charlize walking down the street in this long, lean black outfit, looking fabulous. Um, you know, she's carrying a threat. And so it's so much fun to watch her, you know, uh, you know, beat everybody up, but she's also carrying this, this wisdom, this, this deep, um, it, it reminds me of some of the old vampire 
characters that, like Gary Oldman as Dracula, you know, that, that there's just this mm. weight of wisdom that they carry yeah. from being so, she's so old that they won't even tell you how old she is. Yes, I mean, the, the mythology of it, and it's based on a graphic novel or a comic book ser- a series I haven't read, but the mythology of it is, is, is really silly. And at times I felt like, you know, it's sort of like that Thor issue where like some of the Thor movies take it too seriously and it's ridiculous. And then Taika Waititi came along and finally realized you could play it for laughs. I don't feel That's like- That's not this one. They're no, not, they're not playing for laughs. It's some really fun fighting. I mean, the, the fighting is great. I think and the men are great too. The, but the best sequence is, I don't want to spoil too much, but there is a hand-to-hand combat scene in an airplane that goes on several minutes between Kiki Lane and Charlie Saren. And that like, was a good one because then again, her. you're establishing Kiki Lane's uh, yeah. bona fides there because she's the young recruit who's, who's, who's the newbie who just wakes up, at, uh, you know, dies on the battlefield and suddenly she's an immortal and doesn't know what the hell is going on and, and Charlize has to go retrieve her yeah. and she's fighting, you know, she's not into it. She's not going to do it and it's a great scene. It's, it's a great really scene. Well so, so, so Gina Prince Bythewood is a director that I have always liked. I liked her from uh, Love and Basketball, Beyond the Lights, um, you know, even even the, the the Secret Life of Bees. You know, she's she's she can do anything. She's really capable, and she brings a certain naturalism to this. This is what you're trying to say, in a way. It's not bigger than life. Right. Feels like these are real people in the real world who just happen to be able to survive every time they die. <laughs> yeah. yeah, which They're brings up it. which brings up Palm Springs in a way. <laughs> yeah, that's a good transition. Well, so Palm Springs, I, we've talked about it before, but I remember when this movie sold for like twenty million dollars or whatever it was at Sundance. You know, made all these silly headlines about being the birth of a nation deal by fifty cents or something like that. I remember I saw it after that deal. And I, when I saw it, I was like, this makes perfect sense. Not because it's like this daring cinematic achievement, but it is a very polished kind of crowd pleaser taking that Groundhog Day model, which in some ways is actually very similar to Russian Doll. And it is similar uh, to Russian Doll, a little too similar. And it doesn't compare well to Russian Doll. Russian Doll well, is so much more delightfully. Yeah, rude. I actually recently finished that show. It took me a while. To, I, I got just sidetracked and I finally circled back and finished it. And, I, and it was interesting having started before Palm Springs and finished it after. They have similar beats. But if this is a trope and not a specific storytelling innovation that one movie kind of has as its own IP, like Groundhog Day or whatever. Right that different people can find their own ways in. And I think Palm Springs does it well in the sense that it is basically using the idea of stuck in that time loop as a way to explore relationships and, um, you know, monogamy and all this kind of stuff in a, in a really interesting way so that, you know, and it works well enough. It's, it's sharp. Andy Samberg and Kristen Milotti are both they're charming really good absolutely charming and you're rooting for both of them and you get who they are and uh it works there's a great there's a sequence where they each wake up smiling each day when they start over the day again it's like they're caught in this wedding day of their friends and they wake up in bed with the eye open you know the same right. day yeah yeah um, and really. who knows who they slept with the night before <laughs> Right. the night before they ended up. Billions of times, right? We have no idea. I mean, it's like they, they could be ancient people in the context of this premise. And they give it a bit of a sci-fi element, which I appreciated too. So they play around with it in, in a sense that gives it its own kind of uh, experience. And it's unfortunate that after Neon part, you know, did this thing where it was probably mostly Hulu money, if not all Hulu money behind the deal. But 
Neon we never got a theatrical release. Yeah, I was going to actually think. So it's you know, really Hulu. Yeah, compared to what we were saying about, say, that, uh, you know, Greyhounds, this movie probably could have had a, a real life. I think it would have done well uh, on a small fun. scale. I mean, it's a, in, in effect, it's an art house still, movie. It would really. be an art house movie with a really strong word of mouth kind of a thing driving it. Good they would have done well with it. User. And it's and that's an interesting question, though, because on the Hulu side, you know, I'm a big fan of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and I got into I binged it on Hulu. Um, and I wonder how much of the Andy Sam- Samberg factor right. in that context. He's got a built-in base. Yep. This is a good, this is a good um, uh, growth for him, actually, as an actor. Yeah. It showed me things that I had not seen before, and I think he's capable of carrying a movie, a, a kind of, um, I hate to say it, a, a, a youngish Adam Sandler vibe, if you like. Um, I liked him. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what happens here. I mean, with the Academy waiving its rules, I know this isn't a traditional Oscar movie per se, but there's a conversation to be had about a few aspects of this film. I, it's not like a huge experimental gamble, and we live in unprecedented times. You know? Honey, I've been going over <laughs> the Oscar list, and you are going to be horrified by who has the advantage in this year's Oscar race. Screenplay, maybe? I mean, come on. I don't think so. But it's a good movie. I'm not putting it down. Well, I, it's, Oscars it's, are uh, not, by the way, a way to judge quality. They're just a way to judge a group of people's <laughs> sense of quality. But it, <laughs> There's it, a difference. <laughs> of the three movies that we discussed, I would say this one is the most successful in a lot of ways, in any case. I mean, just in terms, it's it, it's very consistent in terms of what it sets out to do and how it accomplishes. It would be better if it wasn't so familiar, Eric. I mean, it, it finally is, is formula. very, very resonant of, of these other movies. And, and by the way, too close to Russian Doll, which was a huge hit. I grant you that Russian Doll is not a two-hour movie. It's a series, and therefore they were able to play these things out and do funny things with them. But it just feels so much more um, original somehow. Well, I'll give you this. The way I see it is Russian Doll is, is very New York, and Palm Springs is very West Coast. Very much so. They're yes. complementary in a way. If you like Russian Doll, you might actually like There you go. You know, there is one other interesting movie opening this week, but I don't know if you finished it. Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets is coming to... Uh... You know, I'm going to be um, confessional here. Um, I grew up in, uh, in an environment where uh, I was around a lot of drunk adults throughout my childhood. And there's something about this bar and this world that the filmmakers who I admire, and I've always liked the Ross brothers. Uh, I think they're great. Uh, it is, I'm not criticizing the movie at all. It's just a question of me not being able to sit there and find it amusing. I just couldn't. Yeah. I just, and well, there may be yeah. others like me. I'm warning those who grew up with alcoholic parents yeah. <laughs> to, uh, to beware. Yeah. Your, your candor about that has always been admirable. And I, and I think it's, we talked about it in Berlin. I remember you, you saw the movie there and I'd seen it at Sundance. And I think what's- It's very like, rare that I walk out of a movie. Very yeah, rare. But, but what's, what's I think significant here is that the very same aspects of this movie that I think make you uncomfortable or, or are the things that I think uh, make it a compelling piece of work in, in the sense that it's, you know, this thing was, it's not exactly a documentary. They sort of, they, they shot it in a, in a bar set in New Orleans, but pretended it was in Las Vegas. And a lot of the 
people who are the drunks are actually actors or people that they brought in to play characters. But they shot it like this verite thing on the last night of a bar before it closes. It's set in 2016. And it is about sort of the evaporation of the American dream and capture something very tragic that I think is interesting now because when it comes out now, it feels even more resonant. You know, all this like, this sense of idealism just collapsing. So it's, um, if you're interested, if people haven't seen the Ross Brothers films and they want to see something more optimistic, you can watch uh, Contemporary Color, which is their, uh, their um, concert film with David Byrne's amazing show. And, um, you know, John- There's a whole list. I mean, yeah, everything they're, they're they've done is pretty right. good. But, um, but yeah, I mean, this is a movie you can't just drop on Netflix or Hulu and hope that people tune in. So it requires a little extra commitment. But, um, but that gives you a sense of the sheer range of stuff that's, that's out right now. I mean, we are not seeing a shortage of, of good movies being released or movies we're talking about. It's just that they're coming out in a very different way than they normally would. Uh, which brings us to the film festival question. Because uh, this week we got a very uh, nonspecific update from our peers at the, at the fall festival. It's a joint statement from... Uh, Venice, Telluride, Toronto, New York, saying that they are collaborating. Uh, what that means, you tell me. You did a good story. You did some good reporting because it was very vague. I mean, I took it to mean that, it, that they, weren't, they weren't competing for world premieres. But let me ask you something. Uh, reading through uh, the fine print, it struck me that Venice is not playing any of the Cannes selection. That right. suggests that there was one festival that was not in on this, on this conversation. So, and that there was more uh, of a friction between Cannes and Venice than I thought. Yeah, I think that that has been going on behind the scenes the whole time. And it, That's and it interesting was, to me. Why wouldn't, it, that means that the Nanny Moretti and the Leos Carax or whatever those films that were not on the Cannes selection are going to play Venice now. Yeah, well, I've, I've heard the Carax might not play any festivals, which I, which I mentioned in the story, but, the, but it is possible. And why would that be? Well, it's not clear, but I think that on can some, next year, you mean? Yeah, it's either can next year or they they're just they like to launch within whatever framework they have at their disposal, and that's an Amazon movie. But um, but with the Venice can thing, you know, Curie was on our podcast and sort of made it clear that it, it was sort of up to them to to choose what they wanted to do here. I think he and Alberto Barbera, they're friendlier they're friendly, than the boss but people at Venice are who want to own the territory. Yeah, and I, and I think the other issue is um, you, you have, uh, you have a, a sense of um, you know, exclusivity in this unprecedented environment where it's like, who's going to be, who's going to be the, the one that gets to launch movies as difficult as it is right now? And with Can and Venice, you have space between them, so you, you really can assess that question. Whereas with the fall festivals, they're so close together that the idea of exclusivity becomes really impractical. No, it's, I mean, we've, we've been aware that, that as you, as you wrote, that, that, that the festivals have all been in touch with each other. They're sharing best practices. They're, they're trying to figure out the best protocols and safety and all of that. And I, I applaud them all. And I can't believe how challenging and difficult this really must be for them. But um, I, I, I don't, I'm curious to see how they cherry pick all the all the can titles and and how that plays out. And we're going to find out on July fifteenth what the story is with um, with Telluride. Yeah, that's. I mean, it, and it's interesting because it's um, you know 
it's going to create a lot of questions for us about uh, about how we proceed with the the fall season when we don't know, you know, if it's going to be the sort of situation where uh, uh, we don't if we don't have one of the traditional fall festivals, does that change the nature of the fall festival circuit? I mean, if you take Telluride out of the picture, it's a different thing than if you took Toronto out of the picture or if you took New York out of the picture. So, I know it's an. I still, I mean, I'm still hung up on the on the idea of how 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 safe it will be for the community of Telluride to bring people in from all over the country. That is what happens there. They have a a a, um, a, a very loyal group of people who come from all over the country to, to, to show up there on Labor Day weekend. And I just can't imagine that with the COVID crisis that it, you know, tr- spiking and, and trending the way it is, that it's going to be safe for them finally to bring people in. That's all. Oh. Yeah, I mean, fingers crossed. It's it's one of those things where it's like, best case scenario, somehow all these festivals have an identity. And they yeah. certainly still have a role to play, but we just don't know what's actually feasible. I mean, I think more and more, the, the weirdness of the CAN 2020 selection this year is looking like a very smart curatorial approach to a very terrible problem to have. You know, yeah. have, have an impact. Select so you saw movies. Your programmers did some work. So put something out into the world that is then you know usable. It's tangible. So. One of the fascinating things that's going on is because our country is so inept and incompetent and terribly um, behind the curve at this point. Europe is ahead of us, you know, and it's, it's interesting. I did a panel with Unifrance and I was listening to these um, two French distributors talking about some of these films that were, that were, uh, they were in the Cannes selection and, and, and that were in the Cannes Marche and, you know, things are moving forward there. You know, they're opening theaters. They're, they're actually going to have commerce and they're going to have production and they're going to have stuff that people can buy uh, from Europe uh, in a way that may not occur at this end of the, of the, of the line. Yeah. And this is uh, something I was just talking with somebody before we started recording today. I mean, it, it sounds like out in LA with everything going on in California, you, you might be due for another shutdown, right? I mean, well, they're pulling back on the restaurants and bars. <laughs> Wisely. No, the big question right now for everyone who has children is just huge. You know, how do you take the kids back to school safely? And it looks like the government is throwing that into a local uh, maelstrom, as usual. But I mean, I mean, we've been hearing from people who think they can start shooting movies in August. And that idea just seems so hard to, to fathom. In New Zealand or yeah. Ireland. Yeah, right. You're Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Amazon series. Czech Republic. Go for it. Yeah. I mean, that, it's fascinating, too. Or, or Paul Schrader doing his, quite finishing his movie in the South of all. I don't know. Is that happening? He's doing really? it. As, at the time we're recording, I believe he's got like 48 hours to go or something. So, you Crazy. know, I think, there's, I think there is something to be said for the flexibility of working outside of a system that has so many rules and so many, requires so many resources. There's something really, I don't want to say, positive but but certainly constructive about looking at independent filmmaking in a moment like this and what it can do once it's you know more restrictions are in place for the, the issue for independent filmmaking is insurance yeah 
So that that's so the big. I'm this is again like, the streamers uh, can afford the insurance. Maybe the studios, in certain cases, can afford it. Nobody else can. And until they figure that out, there's some bills supposedly going through the government. But I don't know. Well, I've said it before. I just think you know the the guerrilla stuff, the really off the grid kind of filmmaking. Watch that space. Well, there is some conversation uh, um, about people getting together and creating some kind of shared risk consortium. That that would make sense for the independents. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how things come along on that in that front. I mean, I'm sure we'll hear more. Everybody's trying to figure out how can they be the first one to go back to work. You know, we got that Michael Bay producing where he's like saying. You know, we'll be and the, the and the guilds, the guilds shut him down. You know, and he said he got around it somehow. I don't know. Uh, I mean, everybody who has these ideas is trying different things. We talked about um, uh, homemade last week on Netflix. Yeah, there's different ways of approaching it from a creative standpoint, and I think we're just going to see more and more of that input because it's like creative people don't just like stop. You know, they're gonna yeah. the point is, is that everybody's going to start running out of content. They haven't yet, but they will. Right. The que- yeah, it's a really interesting question of how long does it take to run out of, of stuff that's in the pipeline? So, you know. Which is why the studios are selling stuff off to the streamers uh, for right. some quick, quick buck change. I mean, certainly on the film front, there, there are movies that are supposed to come out, whether they come out by the end of this year or they get pushed. There, there are at least... Well, the priority will be finishing those movies, those movies, you know, like, like Avatar and so on. Yeah, exactly. So before we wrap this week, I thought it would be appropriate for us to address some of the people that we lost, starting, of course, with Ennio Morricone. You had a great piece talking to John Carpenter about working with him, which I thought was a really neat way into it, because I think fewer people, when they think of Morricone, they don't necessarily immediately think of the thing. They think of the good, the bad, and the ugly. So it was nice. Or, uh, it was fun to talk to Carpenter because he was like us. He was like everybody else, discovering Morricone through the Sergio Leone movies and maybe the Battle of Algiers, which is another one of the great, great uh, early 1966 uh, scores, really percussive and tense. You know, that's one of the great movies also. Um, and I think he did another one with Ponte Corvo uh, later on. Burn, burn. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, that isn't my favorite score, though, Burn. People admire it, and I, I was surprised uh, to hear that. Um, no, but he agreed that Once Upon a Time in the West was the great great one. And it's the one where you could see these two schoolmates who trusted each other, working hand in glove from the beginning, fashioning the script together, knowing the story beats, so that there was an entire finished score to shoot the movie against. Because of course, um, you know how they say it on movie sets, mid-out sound. It it means that they're M-I-M-O-S. It's like a German joke. Yeah, yeah. out sound as if, uh, you know, uh, uh, somebody from like Fritz Lang, it out sound, you know, so MOS. So, so they're shooting, um, they don't shoot the dialogue. So you could play the soundtrack on the set. And so you have this extraordinary reveal at the end of the movie so that you know what the harmonica means. Mm. And, and it's integral to the score. And right. the whole thing, the last duel, the black hat, the white hat, going yep. at each other, Fonda, Bronson. Nothing better. Yeah, no, I, best score ever in the history of the universe. Oh, totally. I put it up against Bernard Herrmann. I swear to God. You put it up against Beethoven in some ways. I mean, just in terms of the idea of a, a, composing a music that is 
instantly recognizable in this kind of iconic way that transcends time and space. You know, like it was, it was great back then. It's great right now. It'll be great later because of something it does that is completely singular. And also the other thing I think about in terms of his legacy is a lot of times when we talk about movies that have like too much music or like an overbearing score, it's more, it's, I think it's more like a score is just not good enough to earn that kind of presence, you know, because more comedy stuff, it's not over the top really, but it's very, very expressive to the point where it could be getting in the way of the narrative if it weren't as, you know, sophisticated as it actually is. That was something I was just thinking about this past Yeah, year. it was cool to, to hear Carpenter talk about work, you know, admiring him and then working with him and actually bringing him down because he didn't need right. a big lush romantic he, score. Yeah, right. for it, the it, thing. Pia didn't want Carpenter. He wanted much, something more yeah. elemental, yeah. Yeah, yeah, super, super interesting. So I hope that legacy lives, I'm sure that legacy will live on because, um, you know, lots of- By the way, one of the movies that's been pushed back is Halloween Kills. And it was fun to talk to Carpenter about what to expect from this apparent uh, slasher fest, you know, like death count beyond yeah. anything. So gird uh, your uh, loins for Halloween Kills, but it's not coming out for another year. Yeah, they pushed it. I didn't love the last Halloween remake. I think you. you I know, liked it. I liked it. But but you know, Jamie Lee Curtis was a lot of fun in it, and um, I like the idea that they're just messing around in his universe and it doesn't seem like sacrilege or whatever and no it's it's somehow is organic and it, and it david gordon green is smart enough to to figure out how to make it work and he's working with carpenter's uh blessing and and right. input right right so the last and he's writing uh, the score obviously yeah, yeah. Right. it allows him to feel like he has a piece of it the pie um so the, the other person that we lost this past week is kevin rafferty a filmmaker who is often known as somebody who had a very instrumental role in Michael Moore's movies, but is perhaps um, best recognized as the director of The Atomic Cafe, this uh, extraordinary found footage film about nuclear paranoia that I just- Duck and cover. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's almost like Dr. Strangelove plus, because it takes that, that a lot of the, the kind of temperaments of that and puts it into the real world or brings it back to the real world. It brought a certain humor, a certain absurdist humor to it with, with uh, sort of the images that we remember from that era, some of us, but, but it, it had a dark, a dark message. Yeah. So if anything, I hope people get a chance to check that out. He made some other really interesting films that are, are resonant today, including one dealing with neo-Nazis and anti-Semitism, which obviously, you know, it only seems more resonant. Yeah. More resonant. But, um, you know, we need, we need those kinds of films to be recognized as much as, say, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly as important parts of film history. And so, you know, if, if nothing else, it should honor his legacy by looking up the Atomic Cafe and watching it if you haven't. It's pretty easy viewing, all things considered. It's not like just the purely experimental. No, it's very funny uh, yeah. as well. Yeah. So um, I'm actually out next week. I'm taking a little vacation. So we'll see what happens with the various festival things. Hopefully there isn't a crazy news cycle that changes everything. But these days, I guess that's sort of par for the course. So. And when we come back, we have a guest. We have yeah. two guests. Yeah, we'll have a, a live edition with uh, Carrie Putnam and Tabitha Jackson from Sundance. So, the new director. Yes, I'm sure we'll have much to dig into with them whatever happens in the world over the next few weeks. So They'll have a great time, Eric. You deserve it. I'll, I'll try to lay low. Relax. Are yet. you going anywhere? 
I'm going off to Fire Island. So nice. Uh, I spent many years out there in my yeah. in my youth. Yeah, it's Ocean it's, Bay Park. Yeah, I was there last summer. I'll be in Cherry Grove this time. So um, I don't expect to be in any of those really crowded beach parties that some people have probably seen ridiculous images of on, on the internet. Watch out for the poison ivy. And I'll be doing that as well. So <laughs> I will see you in two weeks, Anne. Have a good one. Have fun. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.